The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Well, today's show is about a topic that I think virtually everyone in Sacramento is interested in in one form or another, which is really where our politics are. Um, We have lost the center in many ways in California politics. That's a common refrain I hear from a lot of our listeners and a lot of my colleagues. And we're going to be joined today by Clint Riley, who heads a group called the New California Coalition, who's trying to do something about that very issue. So it's a great conversation about where politics have been in our state, where they are now, and maybe a little about where they're going from one of the longest time politicos in California history just has a wealth of experience to draw on. So stay with us right after the break. We will be back with Clint Riley. American democracy is good, but we can make it better. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers includes organizations across the country who are working right now to build a better democracy by opening primaries, implementing safe, secure voting systems, reducing corruption, and increasing transparency. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear updates from the latest movements in the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back to Nation's State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and today we are speaking with Clint Riley. Well, Clint, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I'm thrilled to be here, Brian. Uh, So if I can, can I ask you when you first got started in politics, you don't have to give me a year, but but I would love the listeners to get a little feel for your arc in this business. It's embarrassing. The first campaign (laughs) I I ever ran was in 1970, which I got fired from. And, uh, you know, I guess I was a stubborn, came from a stubborn Irish family. And I said, well, I'm not going to fail at this. And uh, so I dug in and I ended up in the long run building, I think, the biggest political campaign firm, uh, certainly in California and probably in the Western United States. for the listeners who aren't familiar with, can you give a few examples of the campaigns you've run over the years? Well, I, you know, we have a, a U.S. senator named Diane Feinstein, and ran Diane's uh, campaign uh, for mayor. I, I actually uh, ran a, cam- a recall campaign for Diane. She was recalled in 1982, and. Uh, I ran that campaign against the recall for her. Uh, I got Diane, uh, excuse me, I got uh, Barbara Boxer elected uh, to Congress against Louise Rennie, who was uh, a supervisor in San Francisco at the time. And uh, I ran Nancy Pelosi's uh, only real campaign she has ever had, her first campaign for Congress in 1987. Um, I ran Dick Reardon's campaign uh, for mayor of Los Angeles, which I was per- particularly challenging because he was a Republican running uh, in one of the most uh, liberal democratic cities in the country, but we managed to get him elected. Uh, and I had my, my share of, 
defeats, embarrassing defeats. I ran Kathleen Brown's campaign for governor against Pete Wilson, and we were uh, we were thumped uh, in that race. And uh, uh, you know, I ran many other campaigns as well. Uh, any war stories from those early days that stick out to you? You know, our our listeners love love a good political war story. I think you're the perfect person to ask for one of those. Well, in uh, uh, I'd say a good story was uh, that in 1980 I ran uh, Pat Johnston's campaign for the assembly in in Stockton and uh, Modesto, uh, and. Uh, uh, I was also running, uh, I think, five other campaigns at the time, and I happened to be in L.A. on this particular day, and Pat called me and said, uh, Clint, you won't believe what just happened. I said, well, what happened, Pat? He said, well, uh, my opponent's campaign manager was arrested. And I'm thinking, well, you know, shoplifting, uh, you know, parking tickets, uh, whatever. I said, Pat, what, what did he get uh, arrested for? He said, you're not gonna believe this. He was arrested for murder. So murder, that's incredible. It turns out that he had, he had uh, put, put a contract out on his uh, business partner seven years earlier and the statute of limitation was about to run out and he was, he was arrested. Uh, press of course found this to be a very interesting thing and they were calling uh the candidate whose name was carmen farino who was an incumbent the incumbent uh assemblyman from stockton and uh they couldn't find him he he mysteriously was unavailable and so saturday they tried to reach him couldn't get him Sunday, they couldn't reach him. So uh, an industrious reporter staked out the, the back door of the Capitol on Monday morning. And sure enough, Mr. Perino came around the corner trying to get into the Capitol without having to make a comment. And they put a microphone in his face and Mr. Perino, what do you think about your campaign manager being arrested for murder? And Perino looked into the camera and he said, what my campaign manager does on his own time is his own business. It actually really happened. And of course, uh, Pat uh, was, uh, won the primary by a decisive margin against an incumbent. And then we had to go into a general election against Adrian Fonzi, who was the supervisor, chairman of the board of supervisors for uh, uh, San Joaquin County, I believe. And he was a Republican. So we were in a tough race with him. And this was the day that Jimmy Carter was defeated by a large margin by uh, Ronald Reagan. And for those uh, of your listeners who know anything about the history here, uh, Carter on that day con conceded very early in the afternoon of election day. Uh, I think he conceded at 1.30 or two o'clock in the afternoon. 
and it had a devastating effect on turnout uh, throughout the West. And uh, Pat was caught up in that and Fonzie actually won the election initially by 33 votes. And uh, it was a, uh, so it was so close, we did a recount and it was a hanging chad election. Wow. Exactly like Florida, uh, Gore, uh, Bush. And, uh, and so uh, we had a large number of uh, folks uh, on the ground there in, uh, in Stockton and Modesto. And we actually turned that election around and Pat Johnson was, uh, was elected in the recount by I think 50 votes or 60 votes. So it was an incredible year. So you survived a murderer and a recount all in one cycle. That's 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 impressive. Well Pat did. I knew the candidate. I love this history of California because what, what we're here to talk about today is the new California coalition, which I, I want you to get into, but um, part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show is I think there's nobody better than you to kind of talk about the arc of politics in California and the history and kind of how we've gotten to the place where we are ideologically and politically in the state. And, and, and I wonder if we could sort of zero in on that 80s period to start with, because I, I mean, you told me something before the show that I had never heard of and it's amazing. There was actually a Republican congressman from San Francisco in the 70s. Is that right? Well, it, it, the first campaign I ever worked on was a campaign for a Democrat by the name of Russ Miller against William Maynard, who was a Republican congressman uh, from San Francisco. And he represented uh, the western side of San Francisco and Marin County. And uh, he, uh, he, he ultimately was uh, redistricted out of his district by the great uh, redistricting congressman, Phil Burton. Uh, and uh, so I think in the 1972 election, he didn't run, but he was never defeated. He was the Republican congressman from San Francisco, incredibly. So how is that possible? Like to the to most people listening, it's it's hard to get our head around the idea of there being like any Republicans in San Francisco. So so what what was the city like politically at the time? Well, first of all, it was a district that was half in the city and half in Marin. Marin was at that time kind of a Republican county, but uh, the western side of the city at that time, the Sunset District, was you know, a kind of uh, uh, homeowners dominated, uh, very Catholic, uh, kind of politically conservative, uh, certainly compared to the eastern side of the city, which was historically, which was much more liberal uh, and uh, the eastern side of the city was where Willie Brown came out of, George Moscone came out of. So, uh, but over over time, I actually ran a race in 1979. Quentin Cop, who uh, is was a San Francisco supervisor, 
ultimately became a state senator uh, for many, many years. I ran his campaign against Dianne Feinstein in 1979. And uh, it, earned, it turned out to be a very, very close election, even though it started out with Diane uh, considerably ahead. Uh, Diane at that time uh, was serving out uh, the, the, the term that she inherited when George Moscone and Harvey Milk were assassinated and she was appointed mayor uh, by the Board of Supervisors. And cop ran against her and uh, uh, even then, it, the city, uh, Diane was, was in a very, very tough race in the primary. We, we, won, we lost the primary, COP lost the primary seven, uh, excuse me, 48 uh, to 47.5. So, and then uh, Diane won the re-election by I think six points. Uh, so uh, San Francisco at that time was more conservative than one might expect. Uh, but over time, San Francisco, like California, uh, has, has evolved into a much more liberal place. When I was running you know, campaigns in the 1980s in California, I always felt in the early 90s, I felt like Republicans had an advantage in statewide elections. And it's very hard to understand that when you look at today where there's not one single Republican elected to statewide office. And, and, and you know, one isn't even close to being elected. Um, but in the 80s, the combination of say, a, a suburban Democrats and a much larger cohort of Republican registered voters uh, gave uh, the Republican candidate, if they were credible, like George McMahon or uh, Pete Wilson, uh, uh, an advantage uh, in a way. And Wilson beat uh, Diane. Um, Comfortably, uh, Duke Majin beat Tom Bradley in a race that Tom Bradley was supposed to be winning according to the polls, but of course he lost that race. So uh, uh, the, 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 the turning point from my perspective was actually another race that I ran. And I uh, was uh, asked to come in and run uh, Kathleen Brown's campaign for governor late in the race, uh, things were not going well in her campaign and she fired her campaign team and brought me in to run uh, the campaign. And I always said the biggest mistake I made in that campaign was actually agreeing to accept the, <laughs> the job of running it. Uh, uh, which, by the way, is, is, is uh, you know, you find that the great campaign consultants know how to pick winners, you know, <laughs> and they stay away from candidates, you know, who don't have a, 
a strong chance of winning. But I'm not saying that to uh, to besmirch Kathleen because she was a strong candidate. But uh, during that campaign, she was running against uh, an incumbent governor. And one of the things about our incumbent governors is they have a tremendous ability to raise money. And it's, hard, it's much harder for a challenger to put the money together that's needed to win. And so uh, in that race, uh, uh, Pete Wilson outspent us three to one. And it's very difficult to be competitive in a statewide race uh, with that kind of financial disadvantage. But during the course of the race, Wilson put two initiatives on the ballot. One was Prop 187, which was an anti-immigrant initiative that had as TV commercials, pictures of uh, people climbing over fences at the border and storming into California illegally. Uh, and uh, the second uh, initiative he put on the ballot was three strikes. And you know, in different ways, those two uh, matters of public policy have been uh, incredibly uh, significant in the history of California politics. First of all, Wilson demonized, uh, demonized uh, Hispanics, Latinos. Uh, and, you know, up to that point, another thing that was that was true, but probably not understood today by a lot of people, was the Latino vote in California. Uh, while it didn't split 50-50, there was a significant piece of the Latino vote that voted Republican. And that was because Latinos were conservative on social issues. Uh, but by demonizing uh, Latinos, uh, Wilson uh, set in motion an anti-Republican tide among uh, not just Latino immigrants, but Asian immigrants um, and, and other immigrants. And then today we have 40% of our state is, uh, the population is Latino. And uh, Pete Wilson demonized, you know, that whole uh, sector of our population. And uh, you know what was uh, it got? You know, it it had a short-term benefit of helping him get reelected, but long-term, uh, it was a tremendously detrimental to the Republican Party. But but by demonizing them and scapegoating, I mean, you know, the old saying, you can't talk about policy when someone's trying to deport your grandmother. What what I'm curious about, though, is why that has persisted. If Pete Wilson's kind of in the, in the past, you know, young Latinos aren't, aren't going to remember that necessarily. But yet this this huge advantage to the Democrats has has persisted, I, I think, in part because Republicans have in a lot of ways continued these these anti anti immigrant record. Um, but but what's your what's your take on why this has persisted even a few decades later? Well, you know, I think it uh, 
it's interesting if you look at the elect, the recent presidential election, um, according to exit polls and data information, Trump actually improved his position among Latinos by 10% over the 2016 election, which uh, is surprising to me given the fact that Trump uh, so demonized immigrants as, you know, kind of the number one public policy of his uh, administration. Uh, but I think that there's a uh, explanation. The explanation is that, that if you're a vested uh, Latino family or Hispanic family, uh, immigrants are challenging your lifestyle and your uh, uh, stake. Uh, and, you know, that is, that's the explanation I'm hearing from people who have kind of torn it apart. But, um, you know, I, I'm a Catholic myself, and I understand some of the currents that uh, exist inside the Catholic Church, and the whole Latino culture is a Catholic culture. And, you know, so there was, uh, there were a lot anti-abortion sentiment, anti-gay sentiment, a lot of the social policies of the Democratic Party in those early years were uh, challenging for some Latino families. And Wilson just completely uh, uh, destroyed uh, whatever base Republicans had. And, uh, you know, it's, and we see an, an interesting uh, remnant of that campaign also in the rise of DAs who are trying to undo the huge number of people who are incarcerated in California in prison and jail. So that's uh, George Gascon, the new district attorney in LA, former district attorney of San Francisco and Chesa Boudin, the, the new district attorney who replaced him here in San Francisco. And, um, uh, you know, even the governor uh, has announced his opposition that the death penalty is trying to unwind uh, some stringent sentences. Uh, so, you know, Wilson uh, uh, had, was a really, pivotal figure for Republicans because he also uh, was a United States Senator and governor of California for two terms. So he was a, you know, a, a consequential figure, but you know, they were so afraid of the Brown name that they over, uh, they overdid it in their campaign. They didn't have to do that to win. They ended up winning by 20 points. It won in a landslide. So it was uh, political overkill that ended up backfiring on this entire political party.
That's fascinating. So in, in, the, in the long run, um, Ka Kathleen Brown may, may have done more to support the Democratic Party's strength than, than maybe even some of the governors. So it's fascinating. It is. We'll be back with more with Clint Riley right after this break. Today, everyone needs to think like an entrepreneur, whether it's in your own business, a large organization, or a nonprofit. I'm there for you, baby. The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy celebrates entrepreneurs. You can find us on ivn.us or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. Do you have a business, nonprofit, or campaign that needs to break through the communications clutter? For over 10 years, IVC Media has developed a suite of digital tools, data sets, and creative techniques all to help corporate, government, and nonprofit organizations like you deliver authentic, innovative, and effective communications. Our teams in San Diego and Tijuana can help you overcome the most challenging communications projects in any language or location. Visit us today at ivc.media. Welcome back to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and today we are speaking with Clint Riley. So there's a related part of this, which, which is at the heart of what you're doing now with the New California Coalition that I want to talk about, which is, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about social politics here, racial identity issues. Where did we lose the middle on the business climate and on economic growth and development in, in our state? Because those are not necessarily the same issues. And um, and part of, you know, I want you to talk about the new California coalition and what you're trying to do, but, but let's start with the history is like, we've talked about sort of the social political history. When did, when did labor become so dominant in California? Well, you know, uh, I mean, a number of things have happened, you know, as a result of, of this big mistake that, that Wilson and his allies made. Uh, the registration figures, Republicans have gone from 37% of the state at the high water mark to 24% uh, today. Their registration has declined. So now they're, they're the third largest party in California behind Democrats and declined the state. And in the legislature, Republicans are only 25% of uh, the assembly and 25% of the Senate. So Democrats have basically a veto-proof uh, uh, legislature in both houses. And um, that on one hand, that lack of competition empowers one party in the state. But the second thing that's happened has been that, I'd say over the last 10 years, uh, the Democratic parties moved left. And, you know, you have uh, uh, polling which shows that uh, almost 40%, I think it's 38% of Democrats self-identify as progressives uh, as liberal progressives. And that's uh, an increase of 10% over 10 years prior. So at the same time that Republicans have diminished their uh, 
numbers. Uh, the progressives in the Democratic Party have grown. So the power of you know Bernie Sa Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and uh, you know and progressive Democrats have have grown in the state in presidential elections uh, and in statewide politics. And uh, you know uh, labor. Uh, is uh, uh, the most powerful labor unions in California are public employee unions that have large war chests uh, that come from the paychecks really of state employees have huge uh, CTA, SEIU, uh, where I have many, many friends and have had many alliances in the past with both unions. Um, you know, their, uh, their members are progressive, their leaders are very progressive, and they formed very powerful alliances with uh, Democratic legislators in the context of political campaigns. So, uh, SEIU and CTA are very active in campaigns uh, and uh, uh, active both on the ground. I mean, they actually have uh, many astute leaders like Steve Smith and others who understand politics uh, better than many political consultants. And so they've infiltrated uh, political campaigns and the political process in a very astute way. And this alliance between kind of progressive Democrats and labor uh, has elected a larger and larger num a number of progressive Democrats. And so this dynamic uh, has has rebalanced power in California. Uh, you know, you, I'd say that we have a governor in Gavin Newsom, a lieutenant governor, Eleni Kulinakis. I mean, these are moderate Democrats, I would say. Uh, but when there's no uh, there's no middle. <laughs> uh, they're constantly in a negotiation with progressives uh, and uh, they can't say no to every uh, key matter of public policy. So uh, the middle moves left <laughs> and right. there's no middle. So this is, uh, uh, you know, becoming a problem because uh, the business, let, you can call it the business community, but let's call it something else, let's call it the California economy. You know, we have the fifth biggest economy in the world. And that's been said so many times, it's almost a cliche, but think about what that means. Like California is this nation that's bigger than India economically where they have 1.2 billion people. I mean, uh, and the California way of life, jobs, uh, 
all of that is here inside this economy and the economy has to be cultivated, it has to be protected, uh, you know, for the good of workers and the good for the good of families. So uh, right now, I think, you know, I read a story last uh, Saturday on the front page of the Saturday review section of the Wall Street Journal, which said, you know, on a national level business, has been disenfranchised that you know corporations really have no home anymore even half the republicans are populists uh trump republicans are any business and so uh it isn't just california where this is happening it's it's a national phenomenon and uh i think uh in other areas as well, I think there are problems in the state like homelessness, like the lack of, uh, I don't wanna say affordable housing because that has the connotation of an inner city issue, but I'm, I'm saying the lack of affordable homes in the state for people to live in both apartments and, and also single family homes. And, uh, you know, the governor promised he was going to build 3 million homes and, and, and he's been blocked uh, at every turn in his attempt to do that or facilitate that. And so uh, there are uh, a backlog of problems that are, that are beginning to, uh, impair the California dream uh, and the California way of life, which aren't ideological. They're, main, they're mainstream. I don't even want to call them moderate. They're, they're, they're more effectiveness issues uh, yeah. than they are ideological issues. And unless we figure out a way to address these effectiveness issues and also understand that the economy is important uh, to people across the board, including uh, those in California who, who are living in poverty. This economy is going to uh, have to be the major way they get out. And so we're going to we're gonna, we have to uh, restore some balance to state government. Yeah, well, well said. So, so that's where the New California Coalition comes in, which you are leading. Tell us a little bit about the organization. Uh, well, uh, I'm one of a lot of people who are uh, Jim Wonderman, uh, many people know is this, 17 year uh, head of the Bay Area Council, uh, which is a formal business coalition in uh, the Bay Area, uh, has uh, reached out to business leaders throughout the state and put together a coalition of over 75 business 
groups in the state from the Silicon Valley leadership group to the Los Angeles uh, Chamber of Commerce to uh, business groups throughout the state who were alarmed at uh, the lack of advocacy in Sacramento for the economy uh, and other issues, um, you know, like uh, the homeless issue. I think uh, people have watched the homeless problem become a huge issue for San Francisco. It's spread to the East Bay. Uh, I was in Los Angeles uh, two weeks ago, uh, and I know Angelinos are completely uh, concerned with the huge tent encampments throughout the city and our seeming inability to solve this problem, you know, is affecting the tourist industry, which is the biggest industry in San Francisco. Uh, it's impacting uh, uh, citizens who uh, ha are having their, you know, their way of life disrupted. It's impacting homeless people who are, you know, sleeping on the street instead of under adequate shelter. And, you know, so um, I think people are really alarmed that some of these problems, which you've been talking about for decades, you know, still are not solved. I'm a big fan of Governor Newsom. He just recently put $13 billion on the table to buy, uh, you know, uh, innovative uh, uh, hotels and motels instead of waiting five years to build, you know, houses. He's, he's buying motels and hotels and, and so people can uh, get shelter quickly. Um, but we have a, a, he would say, we have a long, long way to go to truly solve this problem. So what do you hope to do with the coalition to have an impact on the, on these issues? How do how do you hope to change the politics here? Well, I think that uh, moderates in California need to have a voice in Sacramento. Uh, I think the the legislature uh, knows that it uh, can ignore uh, advocacy, advocacy groups in Sacramento, like the chamber, perhaps even uh, the business roundtable that historically have been uh, really seen as, as uh, surrogates for Republican views. And uh, I think it's reached a crisis. And so we're hoping to uh, uh, create a new fulcrum uh, in the state. And uh, we're looking to create an organization of 1 million 
people who uh, will be active, will be it's a membership organization, it will be active uh, as advocates in person in the halls of the legislature, uh, through uh, contacts uh, with legislators through the mail, through email, through text, through uh, phone calls, uh, uh, the same kind of tactics that have been extremely effective and successful uh, for labor, uh, grassroots organizing, uh, and uh, uh, even TV campaigns when it might be necessary. Uh, but also, you know, a bipartisan, much, you know, a, 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 an organization that, you know, has Democratic leaders in it, with a Democratic point of view, moderate Democrats have a voice again. Uh, and uh, uh, to focus uh, not just on, on uh, the economy, but also focus on some of these problems uh, like homelessness and like housing in California. So I think it's such an important time to be doing this because we're in an age of extreme political polarization. And, and I think part of what has happened in the past when we different organizations have tried to kind of organize the middle, if, if you will, I don't want to put this anywhere in particular on the political spectrum. I like the way, the way you said it, that it's really, these are effectiveness issues. But, but my observation is what tends to happen in politics is people on both extremes tend to be more active. Um, because that's just the nature of them. If, if, you, if you are extremely ideological, you're going to follow these issues closer, you're going to be on Twitter more, you're going to be responding to social media more. So what, what is your view on how to, to sort of activate the, again, the, the people who bipartisan come at it from all perspectives, care about effectiveness, but maybe aren't political junkies like some people on the extremes? Well, you know, I'm uh, uncomfortable in some ways with this uh, discussion because, uh, you know, historically I've represented some of the most liberal candidates in, in, in the history of our state, Barbara Boxer, um, uh, Nancy Pelosi. When you think about Nancy Pelosi, how incredible uh, she's been as a politician, but things like Obamacare, there wouldn't be Obamacare, in my opinion, without Nancy Pelosi. I don't, I don't, you know, politics is a very uh, interesting uh, world. And, you know, I've spent, even after I, uh, even after I left campaigns 25 years ago, went into business and I built a, a company in real estate and hospitality. And, and I, uh, as you know, own the San Francisco Examiner and a couple of magazines as well. So I've got a diverse set of interests and 
uh, and uh, when I was running, when I ran campaigns, and it's been 20, more than 20 years since I ran a campaign, uh, you know, I used to say that to my clients that campaigns are won and lost on different criteria of choice. Uh, a campaign uh, could be won and lost on ideology. A campaign could be won and lost on character. A campaign could be won and lost on effectiveness. And there were other criteria as well, but those are the three main criteria. So if you have a politician who's encountered severe ethical issues in, uh, in their political life, uh, they become very vulnerable to candidates on the left, on the right, in the middle, irrespective of what people's ideology is. And if you have an election, uh, like the election where Jimmy Carter uh, faced Ronald Reagan, and Reagan just basically got him in a debate and said, I asked one question, are you better off today than you were four years ago? And people, yeah, he knew the answer to that. People felt they weren't. So if people feel that a mayor is ineffective, particularly executive offices. You know, a DA is not doing their job because crime is rampant. Uh, uh, you know, ideology is not the primary criteria. It's not the primary lens they view that race through. And, you know, the press, uh, tends to see everything through this ideological lens. And this is, this is exactly the conversation that I think is so important to be having at a statewide level now. Um, so, so Clint, let me ask you this, other than giving out your personal email, which I don't want to ask you, if people want to get involved with the coalition, if people want to help, if, if what you're talking about here sounds like a problem that people agree needs to be solved, how, how can they get involved? I think the best way uh, is to uh, contact the Bay Area Council, which has really provided the leadership to launch this effort. Uh, Jim Wonderman, the president of the Bay Area Council, but uh, uh, they're the core organizing group at this point. And I, I, I tell people to contact the Bay Area Council and, and offer to help. That's it's great. Well, Clint, um, it's great having you on the show. It's great to get a view of the history of kind of where we've been, um, but I'm really excited about the potential to um, really deeply, deeply dive into changing the politics here. I think this is a conversation that's long overdue. And as you say, I don't think it's ideological. There's a ton of people on both sides of the aisle who agree with everything you said today. I certainly meet people like that around Sacramento every day. So um, a long overdue hey. conversation. Thank you for starting it. Well, yeah, and thank you, Brian. And let's, let's, let's continue this conversation. Thank yeah, you. Well, well yeah, thanks for, thanks for being on the show.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. I know it's always fun to hear some old political war stories, but I also hope you realize there was there was a reason for that um, that walk down memory lane that we took to kind of focus on where California has been, maybe where the center was before of our politics, what happened to it, and a little bit about how we can get it back. So. Um, if anybody wants to get involved more in this issue, particularly with the work of the New California Coalition, again, go to the Bay Area Council's website, uh, reach out to the leadership there. You can also email me anytime at miller at neptuneops.com. But thank you for listening. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at neptuneops.com or on Twitter at, at nationstateofp one Again, that's at Nation State of P and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. For the last 10 years, IVN has brought you over 10,000 articles from hundreds of independent-minded authors dedicated to a simple etiquette rather than an ideology. We're proud to be rated center by allsides.com and least biased by mediabiasfactcheck.org. It is that nonpartisan spirit that is at the core of our journalistic mission. Today, we introduce you to a new era at IVN. We're handing over the mic, so to speak, to our independent contributors to develop their own shows, their own voice, and their own brand. In short, IVN is providing a programming platform for organizations, experts, and talented journalists to share news, information, and commentary with readers and listeners who think for themselves. We hope you find a few shows that you like. We hope you connect directly with our contributors. And as always, we hope you continue to think for yourself.